0: All right, let's go ahead and take our Bibles. We're going to open to the book of James. Well, as we begin our reading in James chapter one and verse one, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. One of the things that I have a hard time stomaching in this world is what they call your prosperity preachers or your prosperity gospel. The idea that as long as you have enough faith in God, enough faith to claim any victory, that uh, you should be uh, have a life of prosperity, a life of wealth, a life of health, and everything should go along real well. Even as a new Christian, I had a hard time understanding how people could see it that way. I mean, when you stop and think about it, weren't all of the apostles put to death? They didn't die of old age. And even if you died of old age, if faith was the only key to longer life, couldn't you just muster up a little more faith and keep living and keep living? But all of us die. The Bible tells us very clearly that we're all going to come to a death that we're going to experience. and Unless we happen to be a part of that fortunate generation that is here until Christ returns. But if you look at some of the things that are happening uh, coming up to his return, you may not consider yourself that lucky generation either. Because there's some real trials and hardships within that. So that whole idea, when you look at just the lives of the apostles themselves, that whole idea of a prosperity gospel uh, just eludes me. And it's kind of frustrating that they take people... As the Bible talks about, taking people captive with an empty philosophy. That's what's happening in those situations. Well, the reason I bring that up is because that's really the subject matter that comes across our plate in James chapter 1 here this morning. He's dealing with trials. There's going to be two words in the Greek language that are going to be a part of three different words in our English language as we look through all of chapter 1. The words for test, trial, And temptation actually all come from just two Greek words, and they're very synonymous. They're used very much the same. As he starts off in this passage, he tells them to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And notice how he phrases that. It's it's when you meet trials of various kinds. He doesn't tell them to count it all joy if you meet trials of various kinds, when you meet trials of various kinds. And in fact, that word does not just point to the possibility of trials, that word when there, it actually points to the probability or the surety of the fact that you will face trials. You will face trials in this life. You know, in this life we face uh, physical trials. We face health trials. We face uh, financial trials. We face relational trials. We, we face spiritual trials, emotional trials. There seems to be kind of no shortage of categories of trials that you can have as you walk through this life. And you know what? You absolutely will. Even Jesus warned us as he talked to his disciples. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Now here's an interesting thing though. The word tribulation that Jesus used there is not either of these words that is used for trials and testing and temptation in the book of James. Jesus, when he says you will have tribulation, it just means you're going to have hardships. You're going to have difficulties in life that you're going to have to overcome. I almost labeled this sermon dealing with difficulties. But then I scratched the dealing with difficulties and I went with triumph and testing. And the reason is because of the difference in those words. The word Jesus used, that is a good word for difficulties. But the word in James is a little bit more specific than that. The word in James takes the difficulties that you have in life and adds purpose to it. James looks at those troubles, looks at those difficulties that you're having in life with some purpose behind the difficulty. And what is the purpose behind the difficulty? Well, it could be a trial. It can be a test. It can be a temptation. You know, what's the difference between a tempting and a testing? A testing looks for your success. A testing tests your faith, it tries your faith, but for the purpose of building you up, for strengthening you. A temptation is bringing a hardship into your life in order to tear you down. As God allows or brings different trials, struggles into our life, He's doing it for a, with a real purpose behind it. A purpose of testing our faith. Now, in the passage here in James, helps us then to know how do we triumph in that testing? How do we overcome in those trials? Well, as we consider it here this morning, we're going to look at two necessities that are found within this passage. And the first necessity has to do with our attitude. It is check your attitude. Check your attitude. Because notice what he says. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. What is your attitude? You know, joy isn't reliant upon our circumstances. A lot of times we think, no, if everything's going my way, if I have the things that I need and the people that I need and the, and the circumstances that I need, then, then life is happy, life is good. That's not what creates happiness or joy. Joy is less dependent on our circumstances than it is upon the strength of our character. And you know what a soft life like the one that I just described actually leads to? It actually leads to whiners. When we have a soft life like that and nothing ever rises up, nothing ever challenges us, then when something does challenges us, it tends to make us whine. Kind of like Old, Old Testament Israel. Uh, they murmured. <laughs> King James used to say, they murmured. They, they complained about hardships that came into their life. If we don't have hardships, if we don't have things that test us, that try us, then we become weak in fact, that's, that's the very thing he gives us within this passage about three different reasons for why we should be joyful. And it's kind of like the Apostle Paul. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he would write in his epistles, he'd write like, for example, in the book of Philippians, the most prominent theme within the book of Philippians is joy. They're told to be joyful and rejoice. And, and, and he talked about his joy. And, you know, it was written from prison. So he wasn't in the best of circumstances and enjoying the good life. He was sitting in prison, but he still had that joy. Why? Because he had strength of character. He knew God was with him. And he knew that whatever God was doing with him, that he had his purposes and, and he could be joyful even in that situation. Well, as we look at it here, that's exactly what he tells us to do. He says, count it all joy. When you enter into trials, count it joy. And the reason that he tells us to have all joy is, first of all, because it produces steadfastness. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The place my mind goes every time I think of this passage, it goes to wrestling. When I was in junior high and high school, my favorite sport was wrestling. Wrestling's pretty grueling. I know it's only six minutes. You'd think, oh, how, bad, how bad can it be? There's three two-minute rounds. You're giving it everything you've got for all that time, and it's It's tiring. And I remember we used to start every wrestling practice with 30 minutes of stairs. And then we'd get out of 30 minutes of stairs and we'd go in and we'd stretch and stuff like that. And then we'd go over wrestling moves and things like that. Maybe go to the weight room a little bit later. And then when basketball practice was over, then we'd go into the gym because now it was empty. And we'd do sprints in the gym at the end of practice. And so our our practice was grueling. I remember one year we had a a new guy come. He was going to be the new junior high coach, but their season didn't start yet. And we hit our holiday season, and the coach was going away for the holidays. And so he gave the practices to the assistant coach. And he came in, and he said, all right, guys, I can't guarantee that you're going to be the best wrestler, but I can guarantee that you're going to be the best in-shape wrestler on the mat. Now, at Christmas time, when we hit Christmas break, one is you're eating a lot. And we're on a break. It's supposed to be a break. But he looked at it as a goal. He had two weeks to get us into the best shape he could get us into. And we've already had wrestling practice for a month or two. So we're in pretty good shape. Our practices became okay at the end of practice. Then when you have those sprints, he upped the number, So it was alright. You're going to have 25 sprints all the way across the gym and all the way back. Full length of the court. And if anybody dogs it, you're going to get five added every time I see somebody dogging it. So nobody dogged it. But you know what? We hated that guy. (laughs) It was like... He's going to kill us. We're already in shape and he's going to kill us. And and then to make it worse, our coach came back and he saw what great shape we were in. And he says, you know what? I'm handling the rest of practice. He's going to handle that part of practice for the rest of the season. We're like, oh, you got to be kidding me. But you know what we saw? We actually ended up respecting this guy for it because we did have, when our opponents were running out of steam in the third round, we still had energy we still had strength to cope with those things. You know, God does the same thing. When God brings struggles into your life, it's not just there willy-nilly. It's not just a chance thing that happened to you. He knows everything. He's got it all in control. And When you've got a struggle that comes into your life, God is strengthening you. And so God has purpose behind that. I remember my dad was kind of the same mindset at home when I was growing up. And then we put in a wood stove and we heated our house all winter long with the wood stove. So every year we're out cutting down. If we had a friend that had an orchard, we'd be out there cutting down their orchard. That, Well, I should qualify that. He wanted us to cut down his orchard. I forgot to put that part in there. Sometimes they'd change out trees. And so we'd come through and cut down his orchard and cut it all up into firewood and then he'd replant, right? So, And other times we'd go up into the mountains and we'd cut. And we always had enough wood. And it's kind of like I remember Jim telling me one time I was thinking about putting in a wood stove. He says, it'll heat you four times. <laughs> And there's right, there's a lot of process to wood. You're gonna heat, get all heated up when you're out there cutting it, and then when you're splitting it and stacking it, and then when you're hauling it in the house, finally you get to light it on fire and get heated the way you wanted it. Well, we did that a lot. We went out collecting wood and working for wood, and my dad would cut, and we would load the trailer, and then when we got back we'd put it in the wood pile, and then I'd rotate the wood piles to, the, you always had to have the driest wood closest to the door where you got for lighting a fire, you know. And so all, there's a lot of work involved, I guess is my point. But I always thought, you know what? This is, even though there's lots of times I wanted to be at home watching a football game or something like that, and you're out cutting wood or moving wood, I thought, you know what? I'm helping, helping heat our house for the family. Kind of gave you this, yeah, kind of feeling, right? Well, years later, I have my own kids and family and everything, and my dad was visiting, and I said something about it. I said, man, we must have saved a lot of money for the family over the years with heating with wood. He was like, nah. I said, What? <laughs> He said, you know, he says, I worked for the power company, Washington's Hydroelectric Power. Our power is cheap. We make our money by selling it to California and places like you guys. So we didn't really save much money. By the time you buy chainsaws and trailers and put the gas in the truck and all that kind of stuff, we, really, we probably didn't save anything. I was like, then why did we do it? He said, you know, you guys needed some work to do. Gave us something that as a family we went out and worked. It gave you other after school chores. It made you work. It helped you learn a work ethic and discipline. I was like, Oh, you gotta be kidding me. But at least at this point, I'm old enough to understand and appreciate that, right? When I look at cutting wood, I, I learned how to run a chainsaw. My dad had stacked part of the time and I got to cut. Of course, part of that process involved a bunch of stitches in one knee, but uh, I got to learn how to run a chainsaw. That was where, at about age twelve or so, you're learning how to move the move the truck, which was a manual transmission. You learned how to drive on gravel roads while you're out getting to going to get wood. There were lots of things that I learned out cutting wood that aren't necessarily directly associated with cutting wood and some are, but the whole point is he brought work, he brought effort, struggle, trial into our life. Why? So that we would work together as a family and be built up in our character and strengthened and you know, I still like to work. And probably part of that is because of that. Because they instilled a work ethic in me through things like that. Well, that's what God does with us. God takes the trials in life and He uses them to build us up, to give us steadfastness. Why? So that we're solid. So that we're strong. So that we can handle things. So we have strong character. Strong faith. He's got His goal on strengthening us. But not only steadfastness, but He said that steadfastness leads to something then let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. The idea is maturity. That you come to kind of this grown-up approach to life, a grown-up approach to faith or an experience of faith. You know, Ephesians talks about that. We learned about before when we look at the church and the purpose for gifts and offices within the church. God places those things there to grow us in our faith when we come to a point of maturity. We're no longer, it says, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but we're mature in our understanding of God and who He is and our approach at life. You know what? If maturity is what we get out of trials, then trials are worth it. That's a reason to be joyful in our trials. Well, not only do we see maturity, but he also at the end of this passage deals with reward. He deals with reward because he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And it's the crown that he refers to. The word doesn't describe the crown on a king's head who gets it because of his royal position. It, it was the crown that was given to the victors in the, in the races and in, in, in the Olympic contests. And so he says you get this crown, but it's a crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. Now, you know, some have a little bit of a struggle with that. I even read in some of the commentaries where they say, well, maybe it's referring to fullness of life now. A crown that involves life and a full life now. I don't think so. You know, crown of life is usually... Uh, in Scripture referring to eternal life. But I think the problem comes in with our understanding of faith because they say, well, wait a minute, if it's a, if it's a crown like the victor's crown, a crown that you achieve, then uh, how can that be eternal life? The reward can't be eternal life if it's something we achieve because our salvation comes by grace through faith and not as a result of works within our life. But I think the, I think the confusion here is understanding the nature of faith. Is what is faith? Because if, if you get a good understanding of the faith, then you shouldn't have any any problem at all with this concept of a crown and this reward uh, that's based on our faith. In fact, you know, when we look at Ephesians, which is where we often go to deal with salvation by grace, Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and following it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved completely by grace through faith. Not of our own doing. Not of our own works. But here's the deal. That being true, what is the nature of faith? Well, keep following in verse 10. Verse 10 says, "...for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." You see, the point is this. If we have an understanding of what faith is, Faith is not based on works and it's completely apart from works. Faith is just faith. It's trusting in God, putting our faith in Jesus Christ that He died on the cross for our sins, rose again from the dead, and by me repenting of my sins and putting my faith in Him, I am delivered. Completely by grace, not by my works. But, if I genuinely and sincerely put my faith in Christ, it works. It changes my life my life starts to more and more look like Christ. I become more and more made in His image. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved and begin to work. And then God rewards us on that work. Why? Because it's an outflowing of our faith. So He's actually, when you think about it, rewarding our work. And so that's how those things fit together. James isn't saying that you're going to be rewarded because of your works and that you earn your salvation. What he's saying is that you trust in Christ. But you know what? If you're genuinely trusting in Christ, you're going to see the results of that in your life because faith works. Well, the first of the necessities is we need to check our attitude. What what should our attitude be when we have struggles and hardships in our life? Uh, It needs to be one of joy. We need to recognize that, you know what? This actually, I should take some joy in this trial because I know that God is using it to strengthen me. He's trying to make me steadfast, unmovable in my faith. He's using that steadfastness to complete within me a maturing process where I come to maturity in Jesus Christ. And in ultimately, I'm going to look to that reward as He invites me in to uh, His heavenly kingdom. And so there is a lot to rejoice about in this struggle. Even just recognizing those things helps us a long way toward experiencing joy in our struggles. Well, then not only that, but he says that he does give us some other resources. And we need to tap into those resources. We need to make sure to you use your resources. Now, the interesting thing is we look at this passage. God himself is the resource. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom is the is the thing that we need. Now, what is Wisdom. Right? Wisdom's a little bit different than knowledge. Knowledge is just knowing things, right? It's facts and, and that kind of stuff. Wisdom is how to use knowledge in life. Wisdom is being able to take the facts and use it to make good decisions. Now, God says, look, if you're in a struggle and you need, what do you need to get through that? You need wisdom. If you lack wisdom, then God is the source of that. And he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so as we look at this, there's a couple things we need to point out about this. First is the guaranteed availability. God promises that He has wisdom for us. Now, obviously, it's going to be found through process and through sources. And He doesn't necessarily mention all those sources here in His Word. He does mention prayer. Uh, sources for wisdom. We, God, the Bible tells us that we have the Word of God that guides us into truth. Later in James chapter 1, He's going to talk about that. So the, the Word of God is, is part of how we tap into the, the wisdom of God. Prayer is how we tap into the wisdom of God. Godly counselors. The Bible says in a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. In a multitude of counselors, there's safety. Another passage teaches us. And so there's a godly advice that you can get from other uh, people. Also, looking at the way God wired you with your passions and things as well. But He mainly focuses at this moment on prayer. Coming to God and trusting Him. For the wisdom that's there. Now, two things about this availability. First of all, we see about the availability that it is an abundance. right? It says that He gives to all people generously or liberally. He, he, he will give you all that you need and then some to be able to make the decisions that you have to make. Now, that's a, that's a great promise because when we're talking about God here, which is a, an unlimited source, right? He is uh, the fountain of all wisdom, and He is all-knowing. And so this is a great source that we have to be able to tap into for our needs. Not only is there great abundance, but there also is great acceptance. Now, I don't know about you, but some of my trials and hardships come from my own foolishness. I made a bad decision, took a wrong turn. I maybe neglected something that shouldn't have been neglected or I did something that shouldn't have been done or I said something I shouldn't have said or or something like that. But but whatever these trials are that we're facing and that we're in, God says, I'm here for you. I love that. He says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. God's saying, look, you know what? You can come to Me to get the wisdom. And when you come to get the wisdom... You're not, you're not gonna hear, well, you know, if you wouldn't have, do you ever hear that when you were a kid? When you kinda come to the end of yourself and you go to your parents and, and you say, I need this, I'm in trouble here. And they say, well, if you wouldn't have, you ever done that as a parent? <laughs> you don't wanna let a teachable moment go to waste. Well, if you wouldn't have, <laughs> I've done it many times. And not that there isn't some things to be gathered from that, but you know what, God's just encouraging us here. He says, you know what, when you, when you face a trial, when you have that struggle, and you come to me, he says, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give you what you need. I'm gonna give you that wisdom. And so, it's available, and the resources, it's abundant. And, and not only that, we're accepted as we come before him for the wisdom. He promises us those things. And so, we gotta bank on that as we come to him. It's hard walking in faith. But then, not only that, he also does, he gives a condition. And what are the conditions that he gives us First of all, is faith. He said, I, I do have a condition here, and that's you've got to trust me. He says, a double minded person is unstable in all their ways. And he says, you know what, if you're like that, if you're not going to trust me, then uh, you're not going to get anything from me. You've got to trust me. You know, I remember learning that lesson once many, many years ago in, in my life. Lisa and I in dealing with our, with our finances and stuff like that and, 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 our, and our giving and, and things as well. We were, we were kind of like the waves of the wind things were going good, we, we, we did what we were supposed to, things weren't going so good, we quit doing what we were supposed to. And and I remember one time, finally decided, you know what, we're going to do it right. Things aren't necessarily going real great right now, but we're going to do it anyway. And uh, we didn't even know that in doing it, we were kind of putting ourselves in a bind because there was a kind of a glitch in our math, in our checking account, and we found it right after we did this. So all of a sudden, we realized we are going to be bouncing checks and stuff like that. And I thought, wow, I don't know what to think of this. So at any rate, I went and talked to my, my pastor that night and And I told him our history. We didn't know him well. We were new in the church. And I said, you know, we haven't really been faithful at this. We've been kind of all over the board with this. And he dug a little deeper with some questions in my, in our life. And he said, well, let me ask you. He says, when you, when you do obey God, he says, what is your conversation with him? How does that go? And I said, well, you know, I usually just, you know, do my end and then say, God, you know, if it's better for me to experience trials and hardship or whatever, then you're God. You know what's best. Just do whatever's best. And and you know what he told me? He says you're afraid to trust him. And I was like, what? No, no, no. I'm. Didn't you hear me? I'm gonna let God be God. You know. (laughs) No. He he said you're afraid to trust him. He said, God promised that He's gonna take care of you. He, He promised that He's gonna work things out for your benefit and stuff like that. And so there's some specific promises, and he shared them with me about this kind of thing. And he said, you know what? You need to you need to trust God. He doesn't promise that you're going to have an easy road and all these things and a smooth sailing, but you give Him a loophole all the time because you're afraid that He isn't going to come through for you. I was like, oh, I think He's right. And so I got rid of the loophole. God, I'm just going to trust You. And it worked. Everything everything worked out fine. I was asking God for wisdom, but I was vacillating. Sometimes I'd do the right thing. Sometimes I wouldn't do the right thing. Even if I did the right thing, I would say, well, but God, you know, whatever. You don't have to uphold your end of the bargain. Whatever. And he says, look, that's not faith. God wants you to take a step of faith here. That's, what, that's probably what this whole crisis is about. is for you to take a step of faith and to learn how to trust Him. I was like, oh, well then, I'm all in. Let's go. And so we got all in. We prayed and told God, you know what, God, sorry about that before. I recognized now was a lack of faith. Now I'm trusting you here. And that's what he tells us in the book of James. He says, look, I have some conditions here. He says, i got an abundance of wisdom. All you need and more. At the, at the disposal here, and you have total acceptance before me, but the one thing, faith. You've got to trust me. I give you the solution. You follow it. And so faith was a condition of that. But then not only that, we also find humility. Humility. You know, whenever we're full of our own pride, and then we think we can run our own life. And we think we can handle our own business and our own relationships and our own trials and our own struggles. And we just kind of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we keep going. And you know what? That is antithetical to using God's wisdom in your life. As we look at the passage here, in verse 9 it says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So he's saying, you know what, as we face trials, those that are already humbled by the trial can boast in our exaltation that God will take and lift us up. He said, but you know what, even in those who are kind of walking in their own pride and trying to handle business on their own and aren't taking the time to tap into God's wisdom and ask Him for it, he says, you know what, you can be joyful too because I'm going to bring you down off that high horse. I remember the president of the college I went to said, what creates change in people's lives? He said, you know what creates change? Crisis. Crisis creates change. And I find it to be true. A lot of times we just kind of go through life doing what we always do. We do today what we did yesterday because, well, it kind of worked, didn't it? Not not that we always take time to evaluate it, but life just keeps on going and we keep just kind of pulling up, up ourselves out of bed by our own bootstraps every morning. We just keep going until all of a sudden something comes into our life and it kind of knocks you down. And you say, hey, wait a minute. What was that? Something's got to change here. I don't want that to happen again. And what happens? God takes that crisis, brings that crisis into our life, and it knocks us down a peg and we realize, oh, maybe I can't do this all on my own. Maybe I need to lean on somebody bigger, wiser. You see, that kind of humility, unless we have that kind of humility where we recognize that God, I, I'm totally dependent upon You for how I'm going to get through this. And so what does God require of us? He requires faith and He requires humility that we recognize we not, we can't do it on our own. We need Him in this Situation. You know, James chapter 4 and verse 6, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 10 of that same chapter, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you.